I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Startup Nightmares. Startup Nightmares is a podcast that aims to inspire those who work in the startup world to do the best work they can the best way possible while dodging some bullets doing so. Let's just be a bit more human here. All of these people started needing stuff from me. Don't feel like you're on your own because you're, you're never on your own. But I'm paying this person a good wage. Why isn't that enough? And that doesn't make me special. What is making me special is my deeper story. People need a sense of purpose to feel motivated in their job. Wake up at five in the morning and like go to the gym for an hour. Like, what the fuck is that? You're sitting at your desk crying and you're like, what happened? I had no idea how to monetize anything. I was like, ah, everybody gets a title. You get a title, you get a title. Either pay me or I will sue you. All of our guests have been to the dark side of the innovation ecosystem and came back to tell their tale. You can use this. This is how you get there. It is not a secret anymore. My name is Tal Shmueli, and I will be your host. Albert, thank you for coming to the show. Thank you for having me. We are here to talk about your journey in startup land. You've had a nonlinear and quite irregular career so far, and you're doing something that I consider remarkable. Uh, solving a huge pain for people I deeply care about. So we're going to discuss that. And before we go in any deeper, can you please tell us who you are, what do you do, and why do you do it? Of course. Uh, my name is Albert de Simmons, as is Clawson. The... Albert de Simmons, as is Clawson. Exactly, yes. Um, I'm the CEO and co-founder of Underpinned, which is a kind of one-stop solution for freelancers and clients. It's a subscription-based service that basically lets you do everything from proposal to payment in one place, from attached everything to like accounting, insurance, so you can literally log in and have your whole career sorted in one single virtual office. And that's both for the clients and the freelancers. We've been running for about a year and a half now, started in August 2018, and things have moved very quickly. Um, I started it because before this I ran a, I did PR and business strategy consultancy mostly for kind of bigger businesses um, but I also ran a media and arts company and arts charity which is very focused on helping young and emerging artists so I spent a lot of time with I guess the kind of biggest problem group in this area which were kind of the hardcore creatives who were very very focused on their craft and not particularly focused on the business side uh, particularly kind of fine artists who would see the way in which the kind of the way in which they present themselves, the way in which they present their business was very focused on the thing they were producing and not who they were producing it for. But what it meant was I spent a lot of time teaching people how to 
build a business around an art, around a craft. Um, and slowly but surely that kind of crept into a wider pool of people. And it started in the art world and then became, you know, graphic designers and then marketeers and then consultants. And then I realized that I was doing the exact same thing for myself as a consultant for big business. Um, and the bigger businesses I was working for, I was like, actually, these are exactly the same set of problems. They're just in a more complex system. But anyway, that's what then led to what Underpinned is now. How did you transition into entrepreneurship? Did you have a full-time job when you started Underpinned? No, I had a really weird transition in that I went straight from doing the consultancy and running the media and arts thing. The media and arts thing was much more of a passion project. Like I, I don't think, I, I think I, w- I hoped it would be a, it would be a business that could, could, could make a lot of money. I, I'm not 100% sure I really believed that it could be from where it was at the time. Um, so I went straight from just doing consultancy, which I was doing fairly full time. I was doing kind of three to five days a week, most weeks, so fairly full time to doing underpin. I think it was, so July was when we first sat down, 2018, me and my business partner sat down and said, okay, this is a thing we want to do, but right now it's just an idea. Let's, let's sketch it out. And then August, we incorporated. And then October 1st, we drew down the first bit of cash, which made it a full-time job where I was paying myself. So it was a very quick process from this is the thing that we want to do to this is how we're going to do it. So, oh my God, okay, we're actually doing it. I don't, there wasn't really a transition period. It just kind of, st- I stopped doing everything I was doing and I started doing underpinned. And so, yeah, so it was from pretty much from day one, it was my full-time job. What does day one in a non-existent company look like? A couple of games of chess, um, hilarious chit chat, sitting in a, in a, in a, in a, in a room or a coffee shop kind of, desperately going through your to-do list wondering what you can actually achieve rereading emails and realizing that it didn't make any sense or you don't understand what you're talking about uh, more hilariously actually is looking back now on day one email sent and going oh my god i can't believe i sent do you have email. one at hand i don't i don't and not nor i think the ones that i really thought were bad were always contractual stuff which i probably wouldn't be able to about anyway but i remember i remember reading emails that i was sending to lawyers about you know share structures or some kind of little thing about the investment we were raising and being like oh my god i like i can't i'm, I'm lucky that we managed to not get completely done over by somebody because the learning curve on the kind of financial and admin side is so steep in a startup i think that when you start, you're saying the art and science thing. Okay, you've got this passion, this idea, this thing you want to do, this market you want to operate in. And, and that's particularly interesting, but there's a whole other side to it that you learn very quickly and very harshly, particularly if you get money very early on in the process where you suddenly got, you know, I remember having an hour conversation with an accountant about pension responsibilities and being like, what? Like I'm a month into a startup. Why am I talking about pension responsibilities with a really serious dude? <laughs> but yeah, I think that there's there's, the, the day one, it doesn't, I don't know, it's kind of, it's, it, I guess day one is, a, is, is trying to pull everything together and be like, okay, this needs to make sense and be organized. What dictated your priorities in day one? I had and still have a very strict regime about the way that I work. So I would, I would get up and I would work out, these are the things that need to occur for the business to survive and operate as like a basic. These are the things I think I need to do in order to improve the business. And these are the things that I want to do around the business. Usually the thing you want to build is almost unapproachable. It's usually way too big. A vision is not something you can actually achieve. You say, okay, you've got a vision, you know what you want to achieve, you know where you want to go. And that's the thing that's driving you, the art, the kind of passion bit. Put that to the side for a second because you can't achieve that and find out what can I do today, a series of tasks that I can actually go and achieve and, and work through in a day. So I can just gonna tick through the things that I know I can actually do, and then another task is to find someone who can help me do the things that I don't know how to do. 
Sounds so nice and tidy and clear. And, and now talk to me about what really happened. Uh, so, I mean, I, 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 I mean, that was, this part of the pitch is not rehearsed. No, so I'm, I'm thinking like what, 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 what went wrong and why did it go wrong? And I think that actually kind of my perspective of it was at the time you're like, wow, I'm nailing this. And then you look back and you're like, I was not nailing that. Right. So I think that the mistakes, the kind of what actually happened at the time, I think I genuinely was like, I'm doing this all right. Like, this is exactly what I should be doing. I'm working really hard. I'm checking things off my checklist. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm talking to the right people. I, I prioritize. I, right. I delegate. But then you look back and you're like, wow, I prioritize all of the wrong things. So I, I, I mean, <laughs> when I started, I was, and again, I said, I had this really strict regime. I'd get up super early. I'd be in the office like four hours before anyone else. I would write out a huge checklist of things to do. I would feel really organized about it. But I think that the, uh, the biggest thing was that what really happened was you'd 100% have no idea what you're doing. And I think even if you've done a few startups before. 100% you don't know what you're doing. No, no one knows. The thing I've learned the most in being business at all is whether you're talking to somebody who's 60 and done it for 50 years since they were 10 <laughs> or, or, you're, or you're three years in, like you, you both, you have no idea what you're actually doing. And it's actually those, it is always those little tiny tasks that you do, you can do well. But as, as an overarching thing, no one is massively more insightful than anyone else i think that what really happened is a really really harsh learning curve over quite a long period of time yeah i think that there's okay so there's there's this kind of like, i mean if you, if you you know you must know like the lean startup the book right and that was the most depressing book i've ever read because it's obviously a, it's a very important book in the startup world it's a very uh, a, a lot of people kind of use it as a bible particularly for tech but it's very kind of the silicon valley attitude of as lean and as like kind of I don't know, unemotional as clean sterile. and as sterile as humanly possible to iterate towards success. Especially, I mean, like the whole point of a startup is to disrupt something. If you're a startup and you're not changing something, then you're just the same business as something else. You're unlikely to be very successful. So if you're disrupting something, you're changing something, you're operating in what is by definition an unknown space because it's changing, right? So you don't know what's going to happen. And I think that you know, at, at whenever we look at global economics and we look at economists who are predicting what's going to happen, it's so rare that people are right about what's going to happen. And then 10 years later, somebody says, this guy was right. Yeah, but he was one of 100 people and he was the only one that got even close to what it was like. So, and no one listened to him because... Uh... Right, because he was crazy. And so I think that it's a very similar thing. You, you can get better at those individual processes. And like the learning curve that I think I will take away from this will be the legal language, the accounting language, the way in which you operate a business from a financial perspective, the kind of the more admin related stuff. But the actual operation of a new idea is inherently novel every time. And therefore, yeah, it, it, you can't know what you're doing. These are things that remain unknown and uncertain as you're building them. Yeah. I think that's also why people always say they back people and not, not ideas. I think when people are talking to me about how to raise money, one of the things I often say is, okay, uh, kind of put your idea to the side a second, kind of forget your idea, because actually the reason someone's going to give you cash is because they think you are the person to do this and they think that there's an opportunity in the market. Because especially in the first few years of your business, you know, pre-Series A, no one expects your business to look anything like you thought it would look when you started. Um, when you first write that business plan, people expect that to change massively over the course of your first few years. One of the reasons that VCs love to back founders who have done three startups, even if they were all failures, is that they know that that, st that founder 
knows those processes. So although all of the unknown stuff around the business is going to change and maybe it won't work, maybe it will, you know, we talked about mitigating risk, like trying to, trying to, trying to show that, that you've got alternative plans, that there's a redundancy built in. It's some, if you know that somebody's good at those processes, when it does come time to pivot or it does come time to cut half the team out and restructure, that they have like some sort of oversight to do it. There are reasons that it's okay if a business fails because of, and there's the reasons that feel like we should have known better. It's a really difficult question because it, it's, hindsight is a great thing. You know, everybody says, you know, you look back, oh, I see why that business failed. But when you're in the driving seat of these things, you think everything moves very quickly. But actually things move quite slowly and it's, it's a long iterative process to get these things right. And there are so many places where mistakes we made. And there's also, there's kind of two types of mistakes and there's probably loads more, but two that pop to mind. One is the kind of fork in the road. Where are you going to go with the business? So we need to make a decision. Once we've made that decision, we can't possibly know whether the other one was better or worse because we never tried it, right? And then you have the mistakes that are like, okay, these guys forgot to file for their VAT so they didn't get the cash back in the first month and that meant that they were a month behind on a payment and then they were chasing themselves and there was a whole issue. And I think that you can, it's very easy to mess up admin because especially because it's the most boring part of running and doing anything. But, and those mistakes are the ones you have to avoid. You have to just put your head down. You have to learn, which is why like I do all of my admin and, the stuff that I don't want to do first thing in the morning, the first thing I do is that. Um, but these things are so important, but they're things you don't want to do. And a big part of our business is actually how do we create a proposition around something inherently boring that people don't want to engage with that is engaging and interesting. And I think it's exactly the same you know, with a startup, that actually there is a great sense of achievement that you feel when you successfully tick things off a to-do list. Like my, I, I loved maths at school. I loved maths. But the reason that I love maths is the just sense of like almost adrenaline in solving a maths problem. And I think it's very similar with admin. Admin is something you don't want to do, but getting through admin tasks and then seeing that you're in a better place because of it is a very nice feeling. So yeah, maybe there should be a, there should be a podcast on, uh, on admin, but we can make it fun. Anyone who'd ever missed out on a big admin task and it came back to beat them in the ass, it knows. Yeah. You know? 100%. And... Yeah, and you can't, you can't, well, what's really weird about it though is if, if you, if you didn't do something and it comes back to bite you, you still don't want to do that thing. That's the really weird thing about it. Like you still know that you kind of, like there's sometimes you're almost like, yeah, but I really don't want to spend four hours going through accounts. So like, I know I've been charged for this, but like, that's really terrible, but also I, I still don't want to do that task. <laughs> so day, from day one, I would sit down for maybe two, three hours a day and just read government websites accounting textbooks law textbooks all the things i would try my very my very best to avoid yeah and i i I would just like literally put my head in it and go through it and i wouldn't necessarily read it in massive detail but i would read it to the point where i'd go okay eis i now know what eis investment is i am confident that i could explain it to somebody um i also spent a long time learning how to do in a very top level way um, every single department's job. Everyone's had a manager that they hate, right? Because they don't understand what they're doing. You know, and the manager's been like, I want this done today. And you're going, well, that's not how this works. And so I really wanted to make an effort that, especially as we were going to be moving quickly and there'd be a lot of pressure on us, that I wasn't telling somebody to do something that I didn't understand. 
and therefore I didn't understand how long it was going to take them or what the process was. So I spent a lot of time, yeah, doing the kind of boring, learning the accounting, the legal side, and then a lot of time learning how to do marketing, how to do uh, paid acquisition, how to do the back-end infrastructure, how to do the front-end infrastructure, how to um, do the design work, how to do the film work, how to do the copywriting and, and these things, and none of them in massive depth. I think, you know, a good CEO is probably a, a, a jack of many trades in lots of ways because they have to have oversights of lots of things. Many fingers and many little holes in the dam. Right. I mean, the, maybe you have to be, the thing you have to be probably really good at is, is kind of being able to sell the vision and being able to get people to follow you in leadership and in management. And that's a slightly different thing. But you have to be able to have at least a little bit of oversight in all of these areas. There's leadership and there's management. Yeah. Which are very different. Which very, are very different. Very different. And actually, like, I think that a lot of good CEOs are probably terrible at management, but really good at leadership. Um, because, especially in the startup world, if you're moving quickly, especially if you work with a VC, they'll be like, great, people want to follow you, but we're going to put, we're going to put a COO in your company who's actually going to do all of the management stuff. But that, you can't have that in the early days. And I think that I, like, again, that was one of the things that I really wanted to make an effort to learn how these processes work. And so, like learning about scrum techniques and learning about all these other different things to try and help build a team that actually made sense. You're taking a very, um, very particular creative energy and you are channeling it into a, a relatively passive activity, which is learning and consuming knowledge and, and building your professional confidence. Was, was that hard in any way? I had a unique, well, not, very, not completely unique, but quite a unique uh, reason for that background. I, when I was younger, I was a ballet dancer um, and I studied at the Royal Ballet School. And in ballet, everybody knows nobody likes stretching. Nobody likes doing conditioning. Nobody likes doing these other bits. Everybody liked being on stage and performing and being a big performer. But you can only do that if you spend hours and hours and hours practicing pointing your toes and practicing stretching your legs. There was a, an amazing Under Armour commercial uh, with uh, Michael Phelps. And the tagline was, it's what you do in the dark that puts you in the spotlight. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's, that's, that's maybe like over-egging the, uh, the romantic idea of, you know, of, of running at night. You know, you, have you ever watched one of those like running, running motivational videos where it's like this guy telling you that you've got to get up and you've got to do all this, and it's this big thing. Um, and it's, it's kind of like half true. You do have to do stuff you don't want to do, but um, you've also got to do it in a way that allows you to do it. Like one of the things I was saying to somebody recently that we were talking about New Year's resolutions, and I... I put a post on my Instagram story on the 14th of January of a pretty empty gym um, at six o'clock in the morning. And, it was, and all, all it said was, the, uh, the, the new year rush is over, gym is back to normal. And the thing was, it took two weeks of really busy mornings in the gym before people gave up. And the reason that I think that is, is that people are really good at, people are really good at going all in for something for a short period of time and then giving up. But the only way to be successful at anything is consistency like if you want to be a bodybuilder or you want to be a runner or you want to be a businessman or you want to be a consultant or you want to do whatever you've got to do a lot of things consistently for a long time so set yourself achievable goals don't get up and say i am going to raise a million pounds today because you will fail every single time don't get up and say i'm going to go to the gym for three hours every day for the next year because you will fail after two weeks get up and say okay i'm going to go to the gym for an hour three times a week or i'm going to go and do my accounting for half an hour every sunday uh, or i'm going to go and do really achievable tasks that you can actually build on you can do more after you can always overachieve on those things but if you set yourself unachievable tasks then you just don't ever achieve them setting yourself uh, achievable goals when there's no money coming in and you're uncertain of when will money come in It's very hard. You want to do more. You want to achieve greater things. You want to spend your time in the best way possible. 
what are some tips to setting achievable goals from the get-go? If your problem is that you don't have an income and you think that it might take longer than your current financial situation will allow for you to get to the place you want to get to in business, in the thing that you're doing, then that's not considering everything else. So therefore, it's not an achievable goal and it makes sense that it's not achievable because you're not considering the fact that you also have a life to live. Now, one of the things I say to freelancers when I'm giving them advice is, the first thing you need to think about when you're think, talking about your finances and setting your rates is how much do I need a month to live? Okay, I pay £800 a month in rent, say. That means you need to be making £800 plus food plus bills before you're even breaking even every month just to survive. Um, I think that that's... So, so, so what you're saying is like setting achievable goals. Often people focus on one vertical of what they're doing and that might be like my startup goals are this or my career goals are this but actually they need to be part of a slightly more holistic set of, of context so uh, the goals are not just what happens when you open your laptop and start walking right so it, so with your example let's say okay you, you've not got no income you're trying to start the startup so you realize that actually one of the things that you need to do is make sure that you're covering your basic income and that should be part of your goal because if you crash and burn after two months because you have put everything is the Icarus problem you've put everything you possibly can into the startup you've flown too close to the sun and then you crash because and suddenly you've got nothing to back up on whereas if you just said okay I really don't want to but I'm gonna go work in a coffee shop three days a week and do four days a week of my startup and it might take me five months to get where I want to go but I've got a little bit of safety and, you know, luckily some people can rely on their parents to give a little bit of safety or, or, or you can rely on a, a friend who can help you out and let you stay on their, their sofa or whatever it is. But you have to build those into your achievable goals. So when you set a goal, you might, you think of it as a big task. You break it down into what does that actually mean? So if your goal is to start a startup, okay, and you know roughly what that takes, you've got some learning to do, you know roughly what that takes. Part of your task should be, well, actually, I also need to make sure that I'm financially stable enough to be able to commit to this because... You know, one of the biggest hamperings on, on mental health and mental well-being and your ability to think constructively is personal pressures, stress, and financial press and stress. And stress. So if, you're if you're missing out on a call from a customer or investor because you're afraid the bank is calling you. Yeah, and, that, and that's a big deal. And I think that if you're not in a position where you are kind of comfortable and or happy to a certain extent, you're not going to be achieving in a way that you could achieve. Um, and like my reaction, which people always say is very weird, is that if I'm very, very stressed, I will quit all of the fun things that I'm doing in my life and I will get up two or three hours earlier than I normally get up and I will do all of the stuff I don't want to do until I stop feeling stressed and that sounds like a kind of crazy response but the problem is those stresses will stop you from being good at what you want to do and actually buckling down and doing things you don't want to do for short periods of time in order to mitigate those those stresses is, is massively helpful and there's also a point where stress accumulates and the things that you enjoy doing are no longer enjoyable you're with your partner and you're not being able to enjoy your time together. Yeah. Um, you are with friends, you're going out and you're looking at your phone or your mind is wandering or you just don't sleep well because you know those things you should be doing. Yeah, I mean the famous work-life balance question, which again, for my business is incredibly relevant because that's a big problem for freelancers. It's, you know, how do you, how do you negotiate the terms of your, of your life and work balance when you're the person that's doing the negotiation? And it's always tempting to push yourself more into work and, and I, one of the rules that I've set for myself is I don't really like working in the evening so I try my very best not to so I try not to work I mean I'll answer the odd email I'll take a couple of phone calls after six but I won't kind of do any heavy lifting work after 6 p.m and the, the kind of idea of a startup CEO should be in the office till 11 p.m every night but actually 
if you're waking up miserable and you're not enjoying doing the startup side of things because you've lost all of your friends and you your girlfriend hates you and you're and you're financially stressed and you're you know all these things then you're you're not going to be operating in a positive way and i think it's easy to want to rush things and and put everything into it you know there's this idea that if you're doing backbreaking labor all day every day that you're going to be successful and there's a certain level of truth that you should be working hard but it's so important to look after your mental health well-being so it all sounds well and true and i want to believe you okay i really do i need some credibility behind it because these sound like great life advice but was it hard-earned or were you just born with the blueprint of how to get it right i was miserable for large portions of the first year of this company um and there were periods where i really I think it would be unfair of me to say that I struggle with mental health because I think that would be unfair of people who have more serious issues, I think. But there were definitely periods where I was de-energized and incredibly feeling miserable about things and feeling slightly broken and feeling like, you know, I, I felt like there were periods where I, I had loads of acquaintances and no friends or I never made time for the people that I really wanted to see or I literally drove myself to illness, like physical illness, multiple times just by overworking myself and not sleeping and wanting to have my cake and eat it. And I think that there were lots of times where, you know, I would either overwork myself or overparty myself and be like, I, I'm not willing to give up my social life because I'm doing this. So I'm going to do both full out and I'm still going to get up at 5am to go to the gym for two hours. You can't do that healthily. Like, yeah, you can do it once. You can do it twice. Yeah, but you can't do it for three months straight. And if you try and do it for three months straight, you, you almost kill yourself. And like, there were, there were, there were, I remember there was points when I'd come into the office and my team would be like, go home, Alan. Like, you got to go home. And I'd be like, what do you mean? They're like, you're obviously ill and like, you need to look after yourself. And I'd be like, but I'm not willing to forego one of these things that I like. I love being really fit and doing lots of exercise. I love working and I love being at the, at the company and, and, and getting stuff done. And I love going out in the evening and meeting people and doing stuff. What eventually got you to be more sensible? So last Christmas, I was given a, a book called Why We Sleep or Why Sleep? Why We Sleep. Why We Sleep, right, yeah. I actually only got read half of it because I uh, lost it on a plane because I fell asleep. Um, but uh, <laughs> what I, what I, it was kind of that among other things. There was, there was, there was a number of things that were happening in my life. My father was and still is quite unwell. And I had, so I had a fair amount of responsibility around that, um, which is not something you want to be dealing with when you're fully focused on a startup, which is like a child uh, with lots of children inside it <laughs> that are also trying to do stuff. There was a few stresses that were kind of really building up and I was acutely aware that while I was kind of happy externally and other people were seeing somebody who was hardworking and doing well and it, was, it seemed like a positive story, on the inside I was like, actually I am feeling seriously drained and and quite miserable and very overtired and ill all the time. And this was one of the things that really triggered it. I just reading about how important sleep was and how important it was to look after yourself kind of triggered a whole set of other things. And then it was more about like, how do you start to build structures that mean you can do the things you want to do um, while also eating relatively healthily and, and sleeping properly and, and making time for family and friends. Why were you sleeping four hours? Because you were waking up? Or because... No, no, no. Because I, I literally, I would just be out till, you know, I'd be out or, or with friends or at dinner and I wouldn't go to bed till, you know, somewhere between 11 and 1 and I would get up by 5 so I could go to the gym for two hours before being at the office. Self-inflicted, so it's not like waking oh, no, up no, because no, of stress. No, no, no. This is completely self-inflicted. Like, I was, I was doing this to myself. So the Albert that we meet after four hours of sleep 
two weeks into this uh, crazy lifestyle? Who is he? What does he behave like? What I did, what I think actually really changed was that I was actually just miserable. The real difference was like I just felt miserable. So the joy out of doing the things you enjoyed just disappeared? Yeah. and I, Well, like, it almost was more like you had you're chasing something that will make you feel good so you would like oh that achievement still made me feel good but now I need to do something else that made me feel good like, you, you know now I feel like being much more conscientious about how I look after myself means that I am consistently very happy it's not this like constant ebb and flow of oh my god I'm so happy to oh my god I feel so so miserable I want to go and do something that's going to make me more happy um, it's much more now like I'm going to make an effort consistently to, you know, I want to get home and, and cook for my girlfriend or I, I want to wake up and, and, and read the newspaper and be happy doing those kinds of things as well. Um, and I think that I recently shared an article on LinkedIn about making time for your friends and making sure you don't lose out on people when you're running a startup because it's very easy to do that. Um, and I think that it is one of the biggest things. Like you might be going out and meeting loads of people all the time because you're always acting, always busy. But are you kind of faceless? I think someone recently said to me that the, they should make a new American psycho about the startup industry. And I think it's so true because you have all these CEOs that spend all this time smiling and having a great time and meeting loads of people and working crazy hard and sleeping for four hours. And then, you know, there's nothing behind the eyes kind of thing. You're talking to people and you're like, you're just going through the process. I went to this, a, a party last Halloween at, uh, at a VC, someone, that, someone around a VC's house. I can't remember who it was. And I walked around the party being like, this is so, everybody is like a shell. <laughs> like nobody is, everybody's just telling me what they've achieved, but doesn't really want to like be friends or like have an interesting conversation. I, and that was like, so, that's so weird. So I think, yeah, the, the, the big difference is when you look after yourself, you can be happy consistently and you can have positive relationships. And when you don't look after yourself, you can still be successful, but you, it's, you, I don't think you can achieve that kind of happiness. So now we're a few weeks into, uh, into Underpinned. Um, now looking into investment, learning everything you need to learn, still super energized. So we had like a quite, uh, we raised money quite quickly, which was quite rare for like from an idea to like straight away raise money. You know, we'd, we'd raised, uh, we raised 150K to get going. Um, but we started with a fairly large operation. Your MVP is the minimum viable product you needed yeah. to put out is substantial. One of our major premises is that we're not just building a really good single feature which is you know what most startup gurus will tell you you need to do build one thing it's really small really well but the problem is within our industry the problem is there's lots of things to do one thing really well the thing that's not done well is connecting all of those things together so like actually the biggest problem for a freelancer is that they don't want to spend time doing accounting contracts new business development contacts management project management, time management, tasks, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They want to spend time doing the thing that they do, which is consultancy or graphic design or copywriting, whatever it is. And so what we needed to build was this genuine one-stop solution for these people, which means that it can't just do invoicing, which means it can't just, it, you know, and all these invoicing tools that say, make freelance admin easy. Freelance admin is not just sending invoices. If you think that's what your freelance admin is, then you need to rethink your business. Like freelance admin is running a business while doing a craft. The way I used to describe it to artists was like, think about Damien Hurst. Damien Hurst is not an artist. Damien Hurst is an institution and a business with marketing teams and PR teams and business operational teams and infrastructural teams. You know, there's a huge amount of stuff going on. 
So, so what I was saying is, so this was a big operation we had to deliver quite quickly. So we had to deliver all of these features in a way that was culturally in- engaging for community engagement that had like genuine educational insights in it. So a huge amount of stuff going on. And what that meant was we were, we were, we were a long way off what would be considered to be an MVP for the whole product. So while we might be able to validate parts of it, it was going to take a long time. I mean, it took us till January 2020 to release a live version of the product. So from August 2018, that's, that's quite a long time to release what, what is an MVP. And we had lots of betas and stuff. But what it meant was, in terms of raising money, was we needed a relatively large amount of money to run all the media stuff, to run all the advertising, the brand development, the tech development. So I had to raise money... I think my biggest regret was that I raised the first bit of money too quickly and then felt a little bit stuck out in the middle of an ocean with lots of responsibility, lots of people that were dependent upon me and not enough knowledge on how to progress raising money. And I think that investment is this like black box that nobody seems to understand and everybody says they understand and it's different for every single person. But my biggest setback was about three to five months in when we were like, have we made this have we built this in a way I don't have access to the VC world I don't have access to the financial world so how are we going to offset the fact that we've gone for an operational model that requires a fairly large amount of capital but we don't have the links to capital at that point so there were there were parts where I was like actually this bit of the business I didn't understand enough and therefore we, we, we kind of made a mistake in the way that we approached it how soon did you raise the first investment it took six weeks from the writing of the pitch to raising the first that's investment. quite rare that's like un- unheard of and, but at the time I, I didn't realize like it made me think that this process was easy <laughs> it was like the whole which was the whole process of it. we raised the money so quickly that we were like this is not going to be that hard to raise kind of cash because our idea is really good and and we're a good team um which just absolutely is not true um and raising money takes you know even if you are in a good place like expect that you're going to spend six months raising cash like yeah so Six weeks in, you've secured 150,000 bucks. And what did you do with that money? Were you tempted to go and hire people? So I, so again, so this is one of the other things. I set out with a very, I had broken down financially every penny that would be spent for the first 18 months, which we've actually not deviated from that much from day one. Um, so I set out all of the staff that would be hired who were hired on day one. So we started with a team of six on day one, all fully paid staff. So we we set out, I'd set out financially everything that would be spent on. So from like the office to the team, to the accountants, to the lawyers, to every part of the business. So it, it, start, it was almost a, a kind of real business from day, day one. How did you know how to break it into these segments and estimate how much it would cost? Just loads of research. Like I, I, the first spreadsheet that I had, I still have the first spreadsheet that I made. Um, and I literally, ironically, I color-coded it despite being colorblind, but I, I, I broke it down into, okay, basic it, departments that I know exist, <laughs> which was like, you know, HR, service providers, um, the infrastructure, and then the tech, which were kind of, and then there was a contingency, which I built in as well. And I built in a larger contingency than I thought was reasonable because I thought there would be things I didn't have oversight of. Um, but then within each of those departments, I basically went and did loads of research on how much will this cost, how much how much is, is, is realistic with this, how much will this have to scale as we scale up, what are the, you know, where will we have to go. And I think when you start a startup as well, especially again, first time, there are so many costs that you don't even like think you're going to have to pay or you don't consider them. Like what? Um, I mean, literally like accounting, like how expensive accounting is. Like if you're running a business and you've got lots on your plate, like you probably can't do your own accounting. That can cost like 
fair few grand a year that you're going to be spending on on, on getting all of your accounts in order. It's spending money on on office supplies or cleaning or what you know what things you're like. Oh, they're like extra, but all those things add up very quickly. Spending money on like lunches, wooing investors, like the, the amount of things that you have to do, and um, it, you go from if you're if you're sitting in a room and you're doing a little startup and you're, you're on your laptop and you're you're starting to build it, it's incredibly accessible to be at that stage. But to go from that stage to like running a, an operation, there are so many expenses that go into just servicing an office that just go into like making sure a team are, are happy and healthy. So the approach to capital, where do you raise it? How do you raise it? Of course, it is highly subjective. Yeah. Highly, highly subjective. So very hard to give a blanket advice uh, for that. Did you approach it alone or did you get casting advice? The kind of mistake or the biggest hurdle that I found was we raised this money very quickly and then we needed to raise money very quickly, which which turns out you can't just do. So our first bit of capital was raised from family and friends. And that's often the way, particularly with first-time founders, that that's that they're people who will believe in you or know you well enough to know how you how you operate and would, would trust in the way that you'll 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 use the money. How did you feel um, approaching family and friends and asking them for money? I think I got myself to the point where I, you know, if, 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 if they asked a question that I was not confident I could answer, then I wouldn't want them to give me the money. So I wanted to make sure that I had oversight of everything that they wanted me to have oversight of for this process. You know, I wasn't going in and being like, I've got a really idea. Give me some money to do this. I was going in and saying, I've got an idea and I've got all of this that shows how I'm going to use this money and where this money's going to go and what it's going to be used on. Here are all of the contingencies that I've built in, assuming things will go wrong. Here's the risk profile that I've created in order to show that I'm going to try and mitigate the risk as much as humanly possible. Here's the pipeline of how I'm going to approach getting funding in the future. Here's the revenue model of what I think we're going to go into. How much money are we talking about when you're approaching a family member or a friend? What sums are we discussing here? In this particular conversation, this was for the full hundred fifty thousand pounds. So this was this was a fairly like sizable chunk of cash to take from family. How many people uh, are attached to that sum? One person. Um, that's a that's that's you're carrying some some expectations now. At least we think you do. I mean, yeah. Uh... This person is is very much involved in the startup world, and I think we were very confident that they would say no. Like we 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 knew that they would say no if they weren't interested. And that made a big difference because I think that there's that thing of like, you don't want to ask somebody to do something when you know they feel an imposition to say yes because then you're kind of not really asking, you're kind of telling them, right? It's like, you know, do you mind if I, do you mind if I nip salute? It's not the kind of thing you say no to. So you, there's, there's an imposition there. You're, you're expecting the answer. Whereas we made a, we were very, very conscious that this would be a no if they weren't interested. And, and it was a no for the first like few weeks of it. And there was a lot of questioning where, They were like, absolutely not. No, this is not ready yet. This is not ready. So you're like, Albert, uh, you're coming to me. So tell, uh, um, listen, buddy, uh, there's this thing I'm working on. Yeah. I need 150 grand to make it happen. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. 
we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. And then the response was... Well, so actually, we weren't looking for 150 grand. We were looking for, I think, 560,000 in total and we were looking for them to be the lead of this round um, to get get things going. So the first thing we came up with was, you know, business plan, the, the financial plan I talked about, and they said, no, I, I've got questions around this. I want you to be way clearer on this. And so I went away and I was like, okay, that's good. Again, that's criticism. That's something that's critical, which means I can learn. I can get better. And so I went away and learn and learn and learn. And our second investor was an institutional investor. So we went from who I never, which was a completely like random, cold, cool introduction, which is quite rare again. And so I went, we went from what could have been a very kind of um, cotton wrapped um, experience with a family and friend to an institutional investor that had to go through a six week due diligence period. We, there was not a single hiccup in the six week due diligence period with the, uh, with the, with the institutional investor. So I think that stands to show the level of detail that the, family friend round took because it wasn't somebody saying here's the money have a go it was somebody saying i expect there to be a level of due diligence on this that would be emulated by an institution and so when we got to the institutional investment everything was in place for that due diligence so it wasn't about asking for donations no um, charity for your side hustle you were approaching it as a business from the get-go upholding yourself to business standards 100 and i think and i and that's you know it comes back to saying like would you feel comfortable asking this money 100% I would not feel comfortable asking for this money for someone if I didn't have that approach there. You know, if I'm doing a little project and I want to host a cinema night and I ask all my friends to, to chip in towards it and it's probably going to lose money, that's a very different proposition. This was, I want to start a business. The only way I can make this business successful is by raising a fairly serious amount of money over the first few years. And I need to learn how to approach that in a, in a really sensible way. So, well, so I was, it was important for us that we went through that process. Was it backed by a term sheet and a contract? Yeah, equity? everything, everything. Everything. From day one, I mean, this is again, like my head in, in the law books, you know, we had a full share structure. We had an options pool for our, uh, our employees that were starting from day one, which all had options that were vested over two years, period, two year periods. Like there was, there was a lot of, legal and contract stuff that went into this because part of the due diligence process was writing out lists of every single third party software we use writing out lists of all of our share structures and our articles of association and making sure that every part of what we were doing was legally well put together were there parts of the startup journey so far where you were shooting from the hip like so often happens what i definitely do is sometimes go don't really know what i should be doing here but I'm going to give something a go. I'm going to make sure that it's not an absolutely nuts thing to do. And then I'm going to give it a go and hope for the best and see see how it goes. And I think that it comes down to the, your approach to it rather than necessarily the thing that you do. Being able to go, okay, this might be wrong. I might make a mistake. This might not go very well, but I'm going to try it. And then 
if it's not going well, I'm going to know that I can change it. Like I know that I can take criticism and say that it's wrong. And I think that what you can't do is be like pugnacious about it. You can't just be like, I'm just going to keep going down this route and I'm going to try this, I'm going to try this, I'm going to keep going and not listen to the external influence because every single part of this process is so iterative. There's so many influences that come in. You can kind of, you're always kind of shooting from the hip, but you need to make sure that once you've made that shot, you're readjusting for the next shot. Fair enough. What are those things that you would say make someone a first-time founder a successful one? Confidence, 100%. Um, the ability to take criticism constructively. And Which comes with, by the way, confidence. I think kind of a lot of it just stems from confidence. Because I know loads of people that I think are easily like clever enough to do interesting things, easily good enough at what they do, easily hardworking enough, but not nearly confident enough. And you are presented with so many points where you're going to be like, I don't know what I'm doing. Or you're in a room with an investor and you're like, okay, they just asked me a question that I do not know how to answer. Like, how can I be confident in replying to that? How can I unwaveringly show that I am the person to do this? Because a lot of business, a lot of building this is getting people to follow you, is getting people to believe in you, is, is having the confidence to make a decision that might be quite scary. And all of those things, it's just about, okay, head up, keep going, head up, keep going, head up, keep going. And I think making those, you know, the, the ability to take criticism, the ability to keep pushing on, the ability to have really difficult times and keep moving is like largely built on confidence. The other thing is also a lot of the time you will be saying stuff that you kind of know is 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 an exaggerate, not necessarily exaggeration of the truth, but kind of like a your version of what how you see the narrative. And you'll be talking to an investor who you know doesn't really understand your market but you know that they understand that you are good at what you do and they know they they understand how startups work. So you're trying to explain your business in a way confidently that makes them comfortable with what you're doing without lying, because that's obviously unethical, particularly when raising money, but in a way that you're kind of giving a story of the company that makes sense to them. And that that there's so much confidence required to basically completely change your whole narrative so that you can make it accessible to somebody else. And I think... Yeah, I mean, I think the confidence is actually like the key missing factor in most in most entrepreneurs. The confidence just be go and do something and try. Could it be that confidence is not a is not doesn't exist in isolation, but is a is a part of a coupling with a mission or a business? I remember being asked questions and you just flounder and you're like, I don't know what to say. And there's two things I've learned going through this. One is it is 100% okay to say I don't know the answer to that question. Um, but I can go and find out or uh, one of my team members is, is running something on that and I will get a full report and come back to you or I don't know something about that but I think what you're talking about relates to this and I can talk quite confidently about this and we can come back to that later or you know sometimes just saying yeah, yeah I, I think actually just being able to say I, I'm sorry but I don't know the answer to that question happy to find out um, but linking about something as long as it's something completely fundamental like how much money do you need to run your company for a year of course um, but I think what I learned is that okay one it's okay to say that Um, but two when you're asked questions that you don't know the answer to that is like immediately something you can go away and learn and the although I think you know like working with VCs often seems quite fruitless in the early days like most VCs don't actually work with pre-revenue companies um, and going and having those conversations is, is really important and as a first time founder it's incredibly difficult to raise money from VCs before, you're, before you've got revenue because there's no track record there's no commercial traction etc so but go and have those conversations and make sure that they're really horrible and that you really don't enjoy them because one thing that VCs do a lot of is they look for reasons to say no. And whereas private investors tend to have a slightly more 
uh, an attitude of slightly more, I want to be behind something interesting. I want to be part of this. I'm looking at the team and how you're, how you're moving. VCs have a much like stricter approach saying we have a due diligence process to find reasons to say no you know risk mitigation so if you go through those processes you will find the bits of your business that you are unsure of and like you might not think you're unsure of at the beginning but they will ask you the questions that will be like can you explain this to me for us we have like a very complex media-led marketing system right which means we have a very low cost of acquisition and like our cost per click on our media is like between like four and seven p per click which is incredibly cheap and understandably like the first questions we get around it are, are usually to do with like scalability of it and how does it work and it's literally taken me until last month to be able to articulate what we do in a way that is accessible to investors and it's also taken me that long to nail down exactly how the funnel works because it's relatively complicated the way that the the, the the pools of people are structured is relatively complicated and it means that there's a long process to learn how to one do it but then two talk about it and the only way you learn how to do the second bit talk about it is by getting people asking really hard questions so i think those when you when you don't know the answer to the question that is the best opportunity to learn something the role of the founder how do you trust other people to execute on your vision without getting into micromanagement yeah, and this is something I was actually really bad at like I tell you it's just, I found this really really difficult really difficult because I'm a big old micromanager <laughs> I love to be part of every little process <laughs> in the first days so for the first six months I would write down a list of daily and weekly tasks for every individual every day and they say that they liked it they definitely can't have liked it um, but uh, I did that I think in the early days when you're getting started, there is actually a responsibility to be part of all the process because people don't understand the vision, and particularly if it's, it's quite complicated. Also, you're allowed to um, demand a certain standard of uh, work yeah. that only only you can only meet that after you've worked really closely on something. Yeah, and I, so I think that in the beginning, it was very important, even when the team was expanding, to work very closely with everyone so that everybody was on board. But then it came a point where it was like, okay, my head of marketing... Uh, Leah Bernatis she's like incredible at what she does right and I marketing is one of those things that people think they understand it but really you don't and she's like largely the mastermind behind the way in which our brilliant content and brand which is delivered by our head of brand and, and creative director are translated to um, how, how they're marketed online and in the early days, I was heavily involved with telling her, you know, how we're going to structure the brand, like what the messaging needs to be, the narrative, and we work closely together on it. And then it got to the point where I was like, actually, you are way more knowledgeable about this than I am, and I need to take a step back, but I really don't want to. And I know I'm, I'm still struggling with the idea that I have to step back to the point that I was like kicked out of our main office. So I now have a little private office out back, and I like to think that it's because I'm important. It's actually because the team don't want me in the room most of the time, and it's so what we do now is we have like a few touch points a week where I'll talk to everybody and we'll go through stuff but the rest of the time it's like get out Albert please get out like if you sit next to me I feel anxious I don't want you over my shoulder I don't want you telling me what to do um, and so yeah so, so I found that actually really 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 difficult how did she prove herself to you and how did you carve the patience to, to let her do that they got better at telling me to leave them alone which is really important and actually I think potentially quite difficult to tell your boss to leave you alone but it all, I think it all started with the hiring process. So we, all the people that we uh, hired from day one, I knew personally. In fact, Sifted posted an article recently on how I met my founding team because it's all quite weird and wonderful stories. But uh, 
it was this process of I wanted them to be people that I knew and liked, not just for the job that they did. And because of the way we were building this company, it wasn't the kind of like uh, sterile Silicon Valley tech. It was a big bit about it was culture and community and how our brand looks and feels and how you interact with our company and our, and our, and our technology. So it was important that there was a relationship that, that worked, not just in a kind of strict business sense. And so, you know, one of the other things that we did is we'd have like various meetings throughout the, the, the year just to talk about personal issues and or how people were feeling and how things were going outside of work. And what that means is you can then have slightly better conversations about it. So a lot of this, a lot of my ability to step back was them being confident enough to tell me to go away. And I think I found that really difficult. But if you can't instill your vision into other people, if you can't tell people uh, if you can't clearly articulate what you're doing, you need to work on that. So if you can't articulate it in a way that somebody else can understand it and take it away and, and live it, then then you're not that you're missing something. You need to work on how to tell that story. It's the thing they say, like, you know, old old old, old philosophers always say things in very complicated ways and philosophy became simpler and simpler because actually to be really clever, to be really good at what you do, you can explain something in very, very simple terms. And so I think that a big part of it for me was actually how do you narrow down and clarify the the whole proposition in order to be able to give it to somebody else to go and take it away and do something with Albert, we're nearly at the end of our time. Um, where should people go to learn more about what Underpin does? Yeah, go to underpin.co. If you're a freelancer, creative entrepreneur, side hustler, micro-business agency, or clients that are managing freelancers, there's loads of interesting content on there, loads of videos of our community, so you can, you can learn a lot before you commit to even starting your free trial. But also, we're always looking for feedback, so... What you guys are doing is absolutely remarkable. You're solving a huge, important problem, streamlining the work of freelancers and making sure they get paid for the awesome work they done. They do. Uh, this is a big propellant of the whole innovation ecosystem. So we wish you all the best in your endeavors. We can't wait to see you here on the second season, taking us through the raising the Series A, completing a successful crowdfunding <laughs> round and growing your team still working from the corner of private office yeah <laughs> thank you very much it's, it's been it's been really great chatting it's been our pleasure thank you so much Albert selling a little or a lot Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 